Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show and thank you for joining me today. At approximately 1 p.m. local time today in the Netherlands, the International Court of Justice delivered a verdict of seismic proportions. Uh, the court found Israel guilty of participating in genocide and said, regardless of Israel's objections, we are not throwing out this case and there will be a trial. They said that the population in Palestine, quote, live the unlivable. Now, this is a huge win for the Free the Palestine movement, as it officially, for the first time in 75 years, acknowledges the genocidal intent and actions of the Israeli state. Where this has happened and prospered and been carried out successfully for decades, unquestioned, and those who oppose it are essentially defenseless in their opposition. It's just incredible news today. But there are also lots of moving parts, and so we're going to be going in-depth tonight. Uh, we are devoting this entire episode to full coverage on this to help you understand more with some commentary from guests coming up. So where we start here with this is on December 29th of last year, um, South Africa, they sued Israel. And the lawsuit basically accuses them of committing acts of genocide in Gaza, which is a Palestinian territory. It was an 84-page lawsuit, and in court today... They justify their decision by using language from top Israeli officials themselves in terms of genocidal intent. This is the International Court of Justice. There are 17 judges on the panel. One judge was absent. So, you know, the votes today were like 15 to 2 or 16 to 1. But in the court's decisions today with them saying that Israel must stop what they're doing, they actually justify why they ruled the way they did today and they use the language from top Israeli officials themselves in terms of their intent to commit genocide. The Israeli defense minister called Palestinians, quote, human animals. The president of Israel said, quote, an entire nation is responsible. And the minister of Ener energy said they will not receive a drop of water. So by an overwhelming majority, the court ruled Several things. One, Israel must stop any and all attacks on Palestinians. Two, ensure humanitarian aid. Three, preserve evidence. Four, submit a report to the court by next month. And there's also this one. Essentially, the court is calling on Israel to punish those who incited and executed this genocide on Palestine. And, you know, by definition and per evidence, this would literally mean, you know, arresting the entire government, um, generals and top officials being shackled out and essentially arrested. In the top echelons of the Israeli government sits war criminals, from the president to the prime minister and everyone else who's enabled this. And just beyond Israeli government officials, we also have the United States, Israel's biggest ally, which is also very complicit by sending billions of dollars of weapons and aid to literally help them. I mean, a State Department official under the Biden administration and a DNC member literally just resigned because they said, hey, we are literally giving Israel the weapons to go murder Palestinian children, women, and men. We are supplying it to them. We are complicit in this. And it's not just us. The United Kingdom and others are sending support as well. But with this ruling, the question is, will things change here? You know, and I say that not to be optimistic. I say that in literally the most cynical way. Yes, this is a big deal. It is. And we can try to demand change on, you know, on one level. Marching, protesting about this. But for a while, 
that those chants, that moment, this movement is gaining prestige. It is gaining, mon, you know, essentially momentum. But it's also falling on deaf ears for the majority of the part in terms of, you know, reaching government officials. The president of Center for International Policy, Nancy Okel, released a statement today calling for the United States to actually acknowledge this ruling by the ICJ. She said, quote, this is more than a legal technicality. It's about safeguarding human rights on a global scale. She also calls this enormously significant. And it is because today the ruling by the court is historic. It's a major deal. No, they do not explicitly call for a ceasefire in Gaza. But in legal terms, you know, effectively, it is the first time that an international institution of authority has stated that Israel is complicit in genocide of hundreds of thousands to millions of Palestinians. Leading up to this decision today by the ICJ, there was intense anticipation, you know, on exactly what the verdict would be. And this is mainly because, you know, there was, there has been doubt that Israel would ever be accountable. But there was also another case pending before the International Judiciary, the International Criminal Court. This is the ICC, so two separate divisions. And basically, they have a similar case before them right now on the matter of Palestinian genocide. Now, this is a different type of court. The ICJ handed this ruling down today. They can't enforce it, but it's still a big deal. So now you have the ICC, which operates as the Court for International Crimes, and the results will be even more definitive because they have the power and the ability to issue arrest warrants for defendants that are found guilty. So there are already rumblings in this case as distrust is building, because according to a report from Al Jazeera, uh, Palestinians have accused an ICC prosecutor of bias after sitting down with them. Now... That's a major issue because this is the judicial process regardless of international waters. I mean, you're supposed to be impartial. You have to be objective all the way regardless of your opinions or your personal emotions and the stake. It's logic and the facts of what's happening. And the fact of the matter is Israel is committing genocide against Palestine. They are deliberately murdering and displacing Palestinian women and children and men. That is the fact of the matter. And this is going to be a huge trial. There are expected to be about 600 lawyers present. So for one of the Israeli prosecutors to get called out like this is a big deal. This is from the Al Jazeera report. Quote, on December 2nd, Aman Nafi was one of the dozens of Palestinians invited to meet prosecutor Karam Khan of the International Criminal Court in the occupied West Bank. As the wife of the longest-serving Palestinian prisoner in Israel, Nafi wanted to speak to Khan about her husband and the Israeli occupation. But Khan spent most of the meeting talking before his team gave Nafi and other Palestinian victims just 10 minutes to share their stories. Quote, people got angry. They told them you were coming to listen to us for 10 minutes? How are we going to tell you about our stories in 10 minutes? One of the women with us was from Gaza. She lost 30 members of her family. 30. Quote, how can we explain this in 10 minutes? While Khan ended up listening to the victims for about an hour, Palestinians fear that he is applying a double standard by solely focusing his efforts on Hamas and ignoring the grave crimes Israel is accused of having per perpetuated over two months of a deadly war.
Many were disappointed that Khan accepted an Israeli invitation to Israeli communities in areas that Hamas attacked on October 7th, while declining an offer from Palestinians to visit the hundreds of illegal Israeli settlements checkpoints in refugee camps in the occupied West Bank. End quote. So this, these group of Palestinians are invited to meet with this ICC prosecutor, right? And the ICC guy's like, yeah, I'll speak to you. Gosh, finally, I guess I have to do this. You know, I'll give you about 10 minutes. And they're like, 10 minutes? You know, 10 minutes is not enough to explain what y'all are doing to us. 10 minutes is not enough to explain the enormous atrocities that have been committed against us. I've lost 30 members of my family. 30. Israel, as always, is playing the victim here, and do not be fooled because this is not a war. This is genocide. A war is when you have two countries going against each other and defending themselves against each other, launching counterattacks. The Palestinians do not have that. They are defenseless in this. And if you are pro-Israel, let me ask you this question. Do the actions of Hamas on October 7th warrant attacking, bombing, starving, slaughtering, and forcing out millions of Palestinians, including women and children and men. Does that justify wiping them off the face of the earth? I mean, October 7th was not a surprise. The IDF was warned that an attack was imminent, yet they sat on that intelligence and they let it happen anyway. No one is talking about that. We're all just supposed to justify Israel and applauding them as they're murdering women and children. Congratulations. Woo, Israel. Let's send more weapons and money so you continue continue this campaign. And it's 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 so enraging. This is not a complex topic or a complex issue. It's not a war. It's very simple what's happening. And this is a part of a history that is recurring and consistent with Israel's approach. It has always been this way. Back in 1995, uh, President Bill Clinton was able to get the Palestinians and the Israeli leaders to have a meeting at the White House. And he also got them to shake hands. Now, at the time, this was a very big deal. The Israelis are willing to have peace talks with the Palestinians. Big moment. But as soon as the Israeli prime minister got back home, he held a peace rally with a little over 100,000 people. And as soon as he was leaving that night, everything just fell apart. The prime minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated. And the country was already reeling from the political backlash to the peace talks between the two nations. I mean, it was just mayhem. And one key political figure at the time, that was helping, you know, stoke and convey that outrage. Uh, you know, that there's absolutely no way we can have a, a two-state solution. Israel must exist and Palestine should be wiped off the map. That person was a young, fierce political animal named Benjamin Netanyahu. And when the prime minister was killed that night, a group of protesters gathered chanting, BB is a murderer believing that it was his rhetoric that night that influenced the gunmen to assassinate Yitzhak Rabin. And he had brokered the Oslo Accords deal. He comes back home to backlash, holds a peace rally on his, you know, on his, this huge accomplishment. And the opposition is loud and vociferous down the street. And as he's leaving, he gets shot. It was just incredible 
accusation. You know, even the widow of Rabin said that Netanyahu was responsible for her husband's death. So those accusations are pretty powerful and even, you know, gets pushback for it because he's running in this election to be the next prime minister of Israel. And that's got to have some type of weight on the country, right? I mean, the person that's running to be prime minister has been accused of inciting violence that killed the now deceased prime minister. And for a while, that accusation followed him. It had, you know, seismic weight until a sleuth of terrorist attacks followed that ignited fears once again of Palestinian violence, which made any mention of peace void and futile. So Benjamin Netanyahu, he takes advantage of this great moment, of this moment of pain and desolation for Israel, and he seizes on it. He exploits that pain and fear for political advantage and wins the election and becomes the Prime Minister of Israel in 1996. And if it wasn't already clear as to where he stood, he meets with President Clinton and they talk about the peace talks that his predecessor had championed, but he slow walks it and he doesn't take it seriously. No, he's just kind of like nonchalant about the whole thing. It's kind of like, I'll play you so you can think that I'm going to do this, but I'm actually not going to do it. And so you start retracting on your word. You start slow walking the whole thing, stalling. And for a while, that was sort of inexplicable as to why that happened. Why exactly he just walked away from it like that and just let the peace talks fall apart. And it wasn't long before we got the answer. Because in the early 2000s, after Netanyahu had won a second term as the Israeli prime minister, he's filmed in this room with a group of Israeli civilians. I guess he's campaigning or something. And he's talking to them. And he looks at the guy behind the camera filming, and he tells him to turn it off. And it did go off for a second, but then the guy turns it back on. And what comes out of Benjamin Netanyahu's mouth is what he really thinks. He says here, quote, The main thing is, first and foremost, to hit them hard, not just one hit, but many painful hits, so that the price will be unbearable. The price is not unbearable now, a total assault on the Palestinian Authority. End quote. So that's the goal. That is the goal. A total assault on Palestinian Authority. To make it unbearable. And that statement right there is not only diametrically chilling, but very prescient as to what is happening right now. I mean, if you don't believe me, and some of you, you know, probably won't because of all the information out there, and you know, regardless of people's beliefs and providing justifications for this, the link to that video will be in the description of this episode. It is publicly available on YouTube. But that moment right there when Benjamin Netanyahu tells the cameraman to shut it off and then he sneaks it back on, that's when we hear the real him his real thinking on this matter. Horrifying. And Netanyahu is the type of fantastic politician that sort of has that candor and, you know, just being kind here, charisma and I guess charm that, oh, yes, we, we, wanted, we, we, we want peace with Palestine. Or it's like, you know, we don't want peace with Palestine. We just, you know, we just want, we just want to leave them alone. We, Palestine can exist, we just don't want them, you know, coming into our border, which, you know, it's not supposed to exist, but no one talks about that. So, we don't just want peace talks. We don't want a two-state solution. We just want to annihilate them completely. 
And so he said that we are going to launch an un an unbearable assault. And it's not, you know, it's it's not it's not that way now. Palestine, you know, what we're what we're giving, what we're doing to them, you know, that that's small. We want to do something bigger, something of seismic proportions. So that's the early 2000s. And it was not long before that, that Hamas, a group that Israel helped create, and then they just turned on them completely. Ooh, shocking, I know. We reported on that on our special report back in October. It's on our YouTube channel. But yes, Israel did help create Hamas, and then it backfired on them. And one of the things that they said before Hamas became more rebellious towards Israel is that, you know, the country that created them, one of the things that Israel said is, quote, break up this monster before this reality jumps in our face. Incredibly, incredibly damning reporting from The Intercept there. But they did not succeed in doing that because Hamas started winning elections in Palestine, in the Gaza Strip, and in the West Bank, upon which a top Israeli government official, once again, hold your tongue, breathtaking here, quote, Israel would be happy if Hamas took over Gaza because the IDF could then deal with Gaza as a hostile state, end quote. So they created this group, allowed them to rise. They started to back down and get worried when they got too powerful. Then it blows back up in their faces. Attacks start to come upon Israel, upon their creation of this organization, of this group, this militant terroristic group. And, you know, Israel gets attacked on October 7th, which they knew what was coming. Once again, that report, that Israeli, you know, report, the IDF had that intelligence. They sat on that information and they let it happen. They knew it was coming. They wait. October 7th happens. And they use that to launch a full-on genocide, an unbearable assault on Gaza. An assault of proportions that have left enormous holes in the surface of the earth. And I'm saying that not to be hyperbolic. This is quite literally what you see on the ground in Gaza. Whole buildings collapsed. Homes, restaurants, schools, hospitals. Just chilling. I mean, Palestinians are dying every single day. More than 26,000 dead as of today. And the death toll rises continuously. Every hour, every second, every minute, all day, every day, they are dying, they are suffering, cold, attacked, raped, uncleansed, starving, hurting, crying, begging for this genocide to end. These attacks, this vitriolic campaign of discrimination that is endorsed, not only endorsed, but applauded and funded, they are not being attacked because of hostility towards Israel. They are being attacked simply because they exist. There is no biblical, conceivable, or logical justification for launching a full-out assault and gargantuan genocide on any part of the human race. Killing children with impunity, raping women and girls without second thought, killing fathers, uncles, and brothers in front of their families is not a way to protect your country. That is a way to humiliate an entire human race. That is a way to get rid of them. That is not war. That is genocide. 
it is time to be very clear on the definitions. There is no both-sidesism. They are doing this to eradicate an entire human race from the earth. There is no both-sidesism, you know, because when one side has all the weapons and ammunition and the other side is defenseless and weak in their response, that is not a war, that's genocide. I mean, I just watched a video today, and I've tried to stay away from watching videos on this genocide because as much as I do reporting on this, I've tried to stay away from that because I know my limits emotionally, and it is intense. It really is intense. I watched a video today of um, a, a young child buried under the rubble in Palestine still breathing as people tried to pull them out. And another video of a father, a building had collapsed, presumably hit with a missile strike. And a person had asked him who he was looking for. And he said, my four children. And I immediately had to stop the video and just get off of it because it was the pain in his voice. And, but it was also the look in his eye as if that he knew that, you know, they probably did not make it. I mean, the building was in complete shambles. He was literally searching under this heavy piece of rubble for his daughter. He was calling out her name. He was looking for his other three children in addition to that. Presumably the building, of course, was hit by a missile strike. It just really, 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 really breaks your heart. There is no question as to what is happening right now. If you are still unmoved, emotionless, or still think that Israel is justified, then something is seriously wrong with you. It is completely unacceptable, but it's just, you know, it's, it's not just random people on the internet that are staunchly supporting Israel as well. It's our politicians, our government. The president of the United States, powerful people of high positions backing Israel, and that needs to be excoriated just as much. Just as much. And this is not complex. This is not confusing. This is not, oh, well, you know, that's a hard situation to get into. This is not Israel and Palestine at war. This is Israel wiping Palestine off of the face of the earth by committing genocide and continuing to do it again and again and again. In 2021, when that genocide was launched, you know, this is a consistent campaign, of course. They said, we want, we're going to keep doing this to Gaza until Gaza is completely quiet. What do you think that means? When you want to make sure that something is completely quiet, you're referring to death, removal, eradication. If you're referring to a human species as human animals, we're going to make sure they don't have a drop of water. That is not a war. That is full-out genocide. That is you perpetuating your hatred on an entirety of the human race. And that is unacceptable. That is genocide. It is loud and clear. There is, there is nothing complex about this. It's unjustifiably so happening in our country that we are continuing to fund Israel and continue to do so 
and continuing to come up with essentially justifications or statements to say why we're doing this and pretending like we want a two-state solution, that's not going to happen. I mean, the incredible stone, not, not stonewalling, the incredible gaslighting of government officials and the State Department just today as the ICJ ruled Today, that Israel must stop what they are doing. They must halt all military actions. They must ensure the safety of civilians in Gaza. Just today, as that ruling was handed down by the International Court of Justice, we got the news from the State Department that, hey, you know, we are going to be, um, you know, sort of pausing funding for some UN workers because apparently they were involved in the October 7th attack in Israel. You know, we're just not going to acknowledge the ICJ's ruling, but, you know, here's this other story instead. So deflection. We're going to deflect on the seismic news that was made today and a matter we are complicit in, and we're going to talk about something else instead. It is staggering the amount of deflection that not just our politicians are doing and government officials are doing as well, but also the role of mainstream media as well. Organizations like CNN consulting with someone that used to work, someone that's tied to the IDF before they publish a story. Forgive my language, but this is journalism. I mean, what the hell is that? Let's consult with Israel before we publish this story that may insult Israel. Hmm. Reporting from The Intercept on that just coming out just last month. I mean, if you truly want to carry out a genocide, right? <laughs> if you want to carry out a genocide and make sure that you have people on your side, make sure that you not only have backing, you know, funds and, you know, military weapons and everything, if you want to carry out a genocide, you also got to carry it out on paper as well. You got to manipulate people into believing that you are justified in what you're doing because you were attacked first. You know, we're, we just sat here. We're Israel. And we got attacked. It's not like we ever did anything to Palestine over the few centuries. And, you know, to say that is not to justify the October 7th attack. But, you know, it's almost like you with your siblings. If you continue to do something to your siblings or continue to annoy them, eventually you're going to get slapped. Eventually you're going to get hit back. You cannot create a terrorist organization and then cry wolf when they come back to attack you. And you cannot denounce that terrorist organization and degrade that terrorist organization and essentially vehemently condemn that terrorist organization in public when in private you are praising and applauding them because them doing what they're doing to you is justification for you to continue what you're doing to the Palestinian people and committing genocide. And somehow, somehow, the world sees that and they will clap and they will applaud and they will fund you and they will repost and they will congratulate you on what you're doing because you somehow have convinced them that you are innocent. And that is something that is not being talked about enough. But it is gaining major ground here in the United States as many people are waking up to the fact that this is not as it seems. Israel is not innocent. And we are not innocent either. We are complicit in one of the worst genocides of the 21st century. 
more on that tonight. We have a big show tonight. Please do stay with us. Um, there was a lot up ahead. Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate, When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. By his fifth year in office, um, you could tell that it was starting to wear on him. Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency started unexpectedly um, and ended the same way. By 1968, he was under immense pressure for various reasons. It was re-election time, the civil rights movement was still very, very active, and a lot was going on. It was hell on earth. It was our 2020, to put it into context for you. But among all the pressure and stress he was under, there was one crippling issue that kept him up at night, and it even gave him nightmares. This is from the book LBJ's 1968 by Kyle Longley, quote, It is Vietnam that is ultimately going to be the Achilles heel that will bring down the Johnson presidency. Johnson rarely went anywhere without someone protesting U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. End quote. So it's 1968, right? Richard Nixon, out of all people, is the main Republican opponent in the presidential primary. And one of the major issues in the nation is the Vietnam War. Thousands and thousands of American men are dying there every single day, in addition to the Vietnamese civilians killed themselves. This was a never-ending war, and Americans caught on to that. Every president since Eisenhower were literally sending troops, sending aid, you know. But by the time that LBJ became president... There was something that shifted in the political atmosphere that collectively shook the American conscience that affected us at not just our most basic human level, but affected us in a more intense way. And that was the media. Their influence carried major impact. And it was not only detrimental for the advocacy of the war, but for LBJ's re-election chances as well. The media held these long three-hour, you know, special reports that featured the most graphic and vile footage, where you could hear the cries of the distraught woman after this devastating attack in a Vietnamese village. One reporter on CBS News said, quote, It will take more than presidential promises to convince him that we're on the right side. End quote. It was a harrowing live first look at what was happening. But then there was something else. Around this time in the nations, Americans only had about like four major networks. You know, your news channels, maybe a little TV show or game on Sunday and some cartoons. Other than that, it was, you know, pretty standard. Nothing else really aired on television. Therefore, this was the era when Americans really turned in to the news. And they tuned in and they actually listened. There, there was credible, factual, earnest voices on TV that you could trust and understand. And one of the major voices of that era at the time was the great Walter Cronkite. You know, Cronkite was one of the most trusted news anchors in America. He had covered multiple presidencies. He'd covered the Kennedy assassination, the Cold War, along with the Civil Rights Movement, along with, you know, other major key historical moments like the March on Washington as well. But what completely changed the geopolitical stratosphere and media landscape was his coverage of the Vietnam War. The American people were told that we had to go to Vietnam to stop communism, because if we stop it there, then it won't come here. You know, the old, the old communist spreads everywhere phrase. 
philosophy. We have to be the saviors of the West. So, you know, essentially we have to go over there and stop it before it spreads. Walter, an old-time veteran journalist, embraced this unanimously agreed-upon ideology and covered the war with that tone, with that mindset. Many other journalists branched off and got more sensitive reports, which led to infuriated phone calls with the president. This was one exchange between LBJ and CBS News president Frank Stanton. Quote, Hello, Frank. This is your president. Yes, Mr. President. Frank, are you trying to F me? So... These conversations were not at all, you know, candid. You know, this was a very delicate issue, and stringently so, on LBJ, that he made a lot of not-so, you know, subtly pissed-off phone calls. Like, this was a big deal for him, because he knew that if the public truly knew the truth, it would be over for him. And in terms of the morality lesson as a central part of the story, one thing is you may be able to silence a few but you can never silence them all. And that's when Walter Cronkite, you know, this longtime veteran investigative journalist well-respected within America, he comes back into play. Because at the heat of the Vietnam War and the already hotly competitive, you know, political playing field in 1968, in February, Cronkite decides to, to leave the country and he goes to see for himself on the ground. He goes to see for himself what's going on in Vietnam and if the U.S. government is actually telling Americans the truth. He arrived, he stayed at the Carvale Hotel, a nice favorite among journalists, and he continued traveling around the country until he got to a city named Hugh. And what he saw was unforgettable. It was unforgivable and emotionally restraining. It was difficult to even put into words what you saw, nonetheless, that you were there. So his crew pulled their cameras out and they, be- they began filming the most intense scenes to ever be broadcasted. Years later, Cronkite would describe in his memoir, um, he would describe it essentially, quote, as a brutally technical discussion of the firepower and kill rations and the like. How, in effect, we could kill more Vietnamese. I wanted us to win the war, but this emotionalist professionalism was hard to take. Emotionalist professionalism. So he was obviously traumatized by what he saw, and gravely so. They left Vietnam, they flew back home on February 27th, 1968. And at 10pm local time um, on CBS News, they went live with Walter Cronkite's report on the war in Vietnam. It was an unbiased, uncensored, rock-cut, hour-long special. And at the end of it, he gathered himself together, he looked into the camera, And he said this. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. That was veteran journalist Walter Cronkite. And, you know, the only reasonable solution, he says, is to get out now, end the war. One of the most trusted news anchors in the country, after having shown the world the truth, says that. Says that this war is not rentable, you have been lied to. And President Lyndon B. Johnson, like the rest of the nation, was watching that report that night. 
And after um, it goes off, he turns to an aide in the White House and he says, quote, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. And he did. Public support for the war was in a rapid decline almost immediately. Johnson had a button nose when first he went to Congress. Now it's long and crooked like a politician's promise. like that became so popularized in American culture that those actually translated to actual chants and protests in front of the White House. Hundreds of thousands of people chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Of course, kids referring to the young men that were being sent to Vietnam to fight in this war. But also the innocent people that the U.S. was, you know, essentially responsible for bombing. The My Lai Massacre, you know, we always talk about warfare being that, yes, there will be casualties. You know, that's a part of warfare. But we never really do our best to actually protect those that are innocent. And this was sentiment that was widely expressed by the American people and gaining, you know, essentially vast movement. This was a staunch activist back then. One of the largest peace demonstrations in history was held last October in Washington. More than 50,000 persons took part, and thousands of them marched on the Pentagon to protest the war. A leader of that demonstration was Jerry Rubin, a radical activist of the so-called New Left. We recently asked him his view of the limits of dissent. We're living in the middle of a beast. Lyndon Johnson is a common murderer, and he should be arrested for murder. There are no limits to dissent. I, ask my, I think the peace movement should have the anger of a Vietnam, Vietnamese woman whose child was burned by napalm, dropped by American planes, way up there in the sky. That's the anger the peace movement should reflect. The peace movement's gotta go into the streets and it's gotta use the tactic of disruption because the American people are drunk with apathy because they don't care. Our country is now in the situation that Germany was in in the 40s. We're committing mass murder. Quote, we're committing mass murder. Once again, that was an ABC News report, an interview with a staunch activist at the time. And what he said was completely true. There were massive protests in front of the White House, filling up the streets, even getting violent at times. It was no match for him. Johnson knew that he was basically flushed. He was finished. He was done. He could not keep up with this lie. This was not a winnable cause. This was not a winnable situation. So he got on television to give a speech on the war but what he said next, nobody saw coming. Johnson said, quote, Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Everywhere, mouths dropped, including in the White House, including his closest advisors, advisors excuse me, because he told no one. And as a person who studies presidential history, that is a big thing, but it also was a serious defining moment for the nation, a shift in the political tide, that this lie, this secret, could no longer be maintained. The president had cracked under significant circumstances and was not going to run for re-election. The country was in shambles. Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Right? I mean, these words, these protests, the vitriol and the intensity of the moment, it got to him. It broke him. And no, LBJ is not to be admired. I think he is one of the worst presidents in modern history. But the lesson from what he did 
and the impact it had on the country, on the world, is a lesson that we could use today in our current iteration of war and and divisive politics. We are not sending troops, but we are sending weapons that have the same cascading impacts given to a country that should not have them, that does not have the right to defend itself under the Geneva Conventions, that is using them to commit genocide. And no, history does not repeat itself, but it does echo, and it presents itself as a learning guide for what not to do, or for what you can do, just make it worse. Some of the worst people in the country, you know, dictators, fascists, they study history. And yet sometimes we find ourselves in an even worse situation than we've already lived through before. A situation that has dangerous echoes of our past. That was a large protest, and these protests are happening not just in the United States, not just in front of the White House, but all over the world. Not just happening in this country, but all over the world in solidarity and support with the Palestinian people. That we see what you are doing, we, we do not stand for what Israel is doing to you. We stand with you, and we stand with you, and we, we believe that you should have your own state. We support that. Public support against the president for supporting the genocide in Palestine, calling the prime minister of Israel his buddy, his best friend. There is a seismic difference in the atmosphere that you feel now. That's very noticeable just among some of the people we've talked to. And it's not just the president that's getting heat. Democrats are too. And multiple events, if you're a Democrat, whether you're, you know, former Secretary of State, former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, other officials as well. People are going to show up to your rallies or your conferences or where you're giving speeches and they will shout free Palestine. They will shout that you are complicit because by default, essentially you are. And it's not just, oh, hearsay. It's also what you've done and said publicly as well. I mean, there are lots and lots of videos of people interrupting Democratic rallies, even President Joe Biden as well, interrupting him calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The very, there is a very clear message here that we will not be supporting you in 2024. So you can feel that there's a shift. You can feel a seismic shift among Americans, young and old, even children uh, among the many, vociferously dissenting and expressing their opinions about the truth of this genocide. We told you last year about a 44-page document from the lawyers at the Center for Constitutional Rights accusing the Biden administration of being complicit in this genocide. They say, quote, Israel's mass bombings and denial of food, water, electricity are calculated to destroy the Palestinian population in Gaza. U.S. officials can be held responsible for their failure to prevent Israel's unfolding genocide, as well as for their complicity by encouraging it and materially supporting it. End quote. Then today, there was a ruling by the International Court of Justice. 
So again, we're not sending troops like back then, but we are sending weapons and money to the tunes of billions of dollars, over 150 billion since the country was established in 1948 or stolen. And you know, that's our equivalent. It's the equivalent of sending troops, basically. We're aiding this. Under the Geneva Convention Articles, Israel does not have the right to defend itself against a territory in which they occupy. Yet we are continuing to fund them in the name of self-defense, which they do not have a right to. The real country that has a right to self-defense is Palestine here. Being mercilessly slaughtered and victimized every day, Palestinian men, women, and children humiliated, raped, killed. These are war crimes that have persisted and persisted for more than a generation, with the complete and unequivocal support of the U.S. government. There has been vehement condemnation of this administration's hardcore stance, as well as the Democratic Party, on a genocide that does not have popular support, because why would it? And it's not a war. You can't cast this as a war. On a situation that does not have popular support, this is not the Vietnam War. The public's access, access to information is far more wide and bigger than, than essentially could conceivably be dreamed of. We do not need a Walter Conkright anymore to fly to where it's happening and tell us the real truth. It's everywhere. It's on social media. It's on our platforms. It's on our phones. We are seeing children die. We also... Whew, sorry, this is a hard episode to record. We also have the advantage of knowing our history and the full truth. But with that in mind, it quits with what we know. What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about a president who supports genocide? This is an election year. Yes, there are two candidates, it appears, that are heading for the nominate that are literally essentially the set nominees. Yes, there are two very, very controversial candidates, Biden and Trump. But what can we do to help the Palestinians who are suffering every single day in a never-ending campaign by the corrupt and discriminatory Israeli government to kill, steal, and destroy all and everything in Palestinian life without regard to age, gender, or circumstance. And so they are completely wiped off the map. This is not a war, this is a genocide. Wake up. Earlier in the show, I told you that we would have um, some guests uh, provide their commentary on what exactly um, the ICJ ruled today. Um, first up, this is Jamar Jabari, the host of the Voices of Change podcast. He was recently a guest here on the Jeremiah Patterson show, and this was his response to the ruling today by the ICJ. As a black man, I am absolutely proud of the verdict that was pursued for to the condemning of Israel by the justice, the International Justice Court. I am upset that there was no ruling to a ceasefire. That's the only thing that did not come to pass in this discussion. 
I'm sorry in this case, but thankfully I am proud that there is going to be a trial. Thankfully, we are in the right steps to continue to free the Palestinians of the apartheid and genocide that they have been enduring for 75 years. This is the first step for actual justice. And I look forward to my country being also judged for their aiding in the genocide of Palestinians and the UK, which is the originators of this colonial state, they must be put to justice as well too. So I look forward to see the results of that suit and hopefully a trial as well too. This is a great win for the Palestinians, for their liberation. And this is a great win to show the solidarity that blacks and Palestinians have for decades, for decades, from the Mandela, Malcolm X, to now. We also got a response from Ali Andre. Um, he is an NYC-based actor and a musician of Palestinian and Irish uh, descent. Um, this was his response to the court ruling today um, by the International Court of Justice. I think that the ICJ rulings presented today are a welcome step in the right direction. I think we can see more clearly than ever that the world stands against Israel, which is primarily backed by the U.S., as they launch this genocidal campaign against the Palestinians in Gaza. I think people, including myself, are a little disappointed that these measures didn't call for a ceasefire outright. Um, I think that that is what is desperately needed to actually stop the suffering of the Palestinians. And unfortunately, that wasn't included today. But I still think there is hope that these measures will urge governments to be doing more in order to stop the bloodshed. I think something that is, you know, we'll have to wait to see is how enforceable any of these measures are. I think we've seen time and time again for decades, especially with, you know, Palestine and around the world, that although we have these international bodies like the UN, the ICJ, you know, what do these words actually mean? Can they actually do anything to help people that are hurting? Can they help the Palestinians? And so that remains to be seen, but I'm hopeful that these measures will enact these governments to do more to help the Palestinians. I think I'd also like to mention that the response by the Israeli Prime Minister today saying that they actually do abide by humanitarian law and take it very seriously is quite laughable. You can see very easily that there has been UN resolutions since the 60s condemning the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and condemning uh, illegal settlements. And all of these resolutions have been ignored. And going back to my other point is, you know, the UN has put out these resolutions, but has done very little to actually stop these illegal actions from happening. But you can see clearly that Israel has for decades violated international law. And the fact that the prime minister today in response to the ICJ's rulings says otherwise is truly laughable. But again, I think, I hope that this is a step in the right direction towards a ceasefire that can help the Palestinians, you know, 25,000 plus people have been killed, including many, many women and children. Uh, we've seen over 10,000 children killed and what is needed now is a ceasefire. And I think the world is moving towards that, not nearly fast enough, but I hope that these rulings today will urge the world to do more. 
Once again, Ali Andre, an NYC-based actor and a musician of Palestinian and Irish descent, as well as Jamar Jabari, the host of the Voices of Change podcast. Uh, we do appreciate them very, very much for being able to uh, get in those audio messages. I know we are. I know it was very, very much on short notice because when this ruling literally came down, I think I texted, I, I contacted both of them around 6 a.m., um, when it came out, I was literally on the bus headed to school when it was released. Um, but we are definitely going to be having continuing coverage on this, including tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, we're going to have a little bit more on this as well. And essentially for the rest of the time until this genocide concludes, um, we are working on establishing essentially a set date for like every Wednesday or every Thursday or something or every Tuesday. Um, we have the episode specifically dedicated to Palestine, um, just to keep you updated on what's happening and, you know, Israel's transgressions or whatever. Um, but thank you very, very much for listening to this special episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. This was a TGPS special report. Once again, that ruling today by the, inter by the International Court of Justice, it was a 15 to 2 or depending on how you look at it, 16 to 1, I have to go back and look at the different rulings. But it was a near unanimous decision. It was essentially an overwhelming majority of the court agreeing that Israel is complicit in this and that they need to work to stop, to prevent more genocide, and that any official who incited and fomented this needs to be held accountable. You know, held accountable essentially by arresting or, you know, charging um, tomorrow on the show, we're going to be talking about a lot because a lot is happening, um, not just in international, not just in geo, you know, geopolitics, but also here in the United States as well. But tomorrow we're going to be talking about a little bit more on Benjamin Netanyahu and his political career and also the aut autocratic tendencies that he has that has also led to Israelis protesting his government in a way that is making it difficult for him to manage this genocide, which is, you know, as he's becoming increasingly unpopular in Israel as well. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Um, whew, take care, um, continue to pray and hope and donate. Do everything we can in terms of marching, protesting, and spreading the word and posting on your social media channels about what's happening in Palestine. We cannot grow tired of this. We cannot give up on them. They are counting on us. They are screaming. They are crying. They are suffering. And tonight, as you listen to this, many of them are without a home. They are without shelter. Please continue to support Palestine and do not grow weary in this movement. Free Palestine from the river to the sea. All right, take care.